The study of the five principles of unity has been easy so far because it's been easy to accept principles that we see and experience and we're about to get into, uh, for me anyway, the most difficult of all of the principles, this third principle, the principle of perceptions. And here's what it says. The principle of perceptions says, ready, go. I have some responsibility for how others perceive me. I have some responsibility for how others perceive me. This is a tricky one. Uh, this is a difficult one. This is one that the older I get, the easier it is for me, but the younger I was, the more impossible this was for me to embrace. Um, one good way to think about it is this. So far we've been talking and I've been challenging you to learn to find Christ in other people, right? Know that Christ is in them. Learn to get to the Christ in them. Learn to see past the flesh. Learn to see past the brokenness. Learn to see past the flaws and connect with the Christ in them. That's how you, that's how you do relationships. And so it's been about finding Christ in other people. Well, now we're going to flip that script and I'm going to tell you that it's also really, really important for you to live your life in such a way that others can find Christ in you. Important to be making decisions in your life, lifestyle decisions and every other kind of decisions that make it easier for your body of believers, your congregation, your other Christians in your life to find Christ in you. And so what we're really talking about here, well, fill in this first blank with me first, and then, then we'll get into it. Uh, the solution to any problem relationship of yours lies with the Christ in you. Romans 12, Romans 14. The solution to any problem relationships of yours lies with the Christ in you. Romans 12 and Romans 14 both get us into this in a good way. Uh, Romans 12 is just a kind of a, a comment from Paul that as far as it depends upon you, you should live at peace with all people. But Romans 14 really tells us a story that, that begins to convict. Romans 14, and by the way, I think you can find this in other letters of Paul's too. I'm thinking it was in the Corinthian letter, if I'm not mistaken. But there was a concept that went in, was going on in some communities about eating, about the availability in the marketplace of food that had been used as a sacrifice to idols. Um, think of it this way. Uh, are you familiar with the concept of day-old bakeries? Do they even still have day-old bakeries? Okay, the concept there is it's not as fresh, it's stuff that's a day-old, but it's cheaper, right? And you can afford it. In the marketplaces, in Rome, this was definitely true, and I believe, I, I, I think it was the Corinthian letter that also addressed this, so it was true in Corinth as well. Meat was a commodity. Meat of any kind was a commodity in, this, in, the, in the ancient cultures. But in the marketplace, there was meat that had been used as a sacrifice to idols. And by that, I mean taken and laid on an altar for a few seconds or minutes and then taken off. Note, not touched, not otherwise dealt with other than just to lay it on this altar, take it off. And what would happen is the church, the, the, those idol-worshiping uh, uh, entities would then make that meat available in the marketplace and it was cheaper it was less expensive and so naturally the people who weren't able to afford meat otherwise were going into the marketplace and saying wait a minute you're telling me this was only all, the only thing wrong with this meat is it was 
sacrificed to an idol and placed back here, and I can get it for half the price? Sign me up. I'll take that. Yeah, I mean, and so people were, were eating this meat, and it was happening in the church as well. Well, not only was this in many instances, not only was it meat that wouldn't have been kosher, which the kosher rules are now gone after, after Peter's dream on that housetop in Joppa. The, the kosher rules are now gone, but not so much. They were, but not so much, if you know what I mean. Some people had a hard time letting go. So not only was this meat in some instances not kosher, but in other instances this meat had been used to be sacrificed to an idol, and we don't believe in idols. And in fact, God's made it very clear to us as a Jewish people that the, sacrifice, that the, the worship of idols is a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. We have paid dearly for that. In fact, we didn't even hear from God for 400 years because we allowed our worship to get integrated with other cultures and worshiped idols. And God hates that. He does not want that. He is a jealous God. They could point to a thousand different scriptures out of the Old Testament about why God doesn't want us having anything to do with idols. And so they had plenty of scripture in the church the people who were saying, this is wrong, we shouldn't be doing this. But then there were these other Gentile Christians who were not raised with those Jewish traditions, and they just didn't see what the big deal was. They were like, it doesn't affect my spirituality. Peter said, God said, if I made it, you can eat it. So it's not a kosher deal, so what's y'all's problem? We're not worshiping the idols. We're just buying this meat. I don't care who it was sacrificed to. It's good meat. It's not hurting me. And so there was this split in the church. Paul writes a letter to the church, and to the Roman church. And this is in Romans chapter 14. I'm just paraphrasing a ton here. You'll have to go back and read this. Test me. But Paul writes a letter to the church in Rome. And he's going to try to address this issue because they're fighting with each other. You shouldn't be eating this meat. There's nothing wrong with this meat. Yes, there is. It's not kosher. We don't have to be kosher. I have the freedom in Christ to eat this meat. Paul writes this letter. You've got one half of the church that is enlightened. They understand what's happened with the gospel and that kosher is not a thing anymore. You've got one half of the church that is Jewish by tradition, and by golly, I've never eaten bacon in my whole life, and we're not going to start now. And I can show you the scriptures. Paul writes this letter, and he's going to fix this problem, right? So who do you think Paul writes to? Who do you think he addresses? Who do you think he wants to go and sit down and correct? You'd think it would have been those old, stodgy, traditional Jews. Those are the people who needed correcting, right? Those are the people who needed to have somebody come up, put their arm around them and say, and lovingly say, hey guys, it's okay to eat this now. We have the freedom in Christ to do this. That's who you would think he would address. That's not who he addressed. Paul wrote and said to the other Christians, look, and I'm paraphrasing, but here's what he says, look, I know it's okay to eat this meat. And I know you have the freedom in Christ to eat this meat. And you know it's okay. They're never going to make this journey, this crowd over here. They're not going to get there. They're never going to, it's never going to be okay with them. And every time you do this, 
It creates a stumbling block for them, and it tarnishes your testimony and your ability to be a godly influence in their lives. I'm just telling you, it's not worth it. This freedom in Christ that you have to eat this, it's not worth it. The damage you're doing to your testimony with the rest of your church. So I'm telling you, don't eat the meat. And that's when the yebuts start. And every good teacher in the church knows that there are going to be yebuts. That's when the yebuts would start. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but I have the freedom to eat this. Yeah, but Peter had this dream, remember? And yeah, but they're just being anti-change. They're not progressive. They don't, they're not culturally relevant. They, they don't understand. There's nothing here that prevents... Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And Paul says, no, don't. Don't do it. And, and we saw this even, we saw this, this same kind of notion in the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 when similar issues were coming up with the Gentile believers. They, you know, the Jewish people were just all up in arms. Those Gentile believers, they don't believe in this. They don't believe in this. They don't believe in this. They've never done this. They don't even know what this is. If you ask them to find Exodus in their Bibles, they couldn't even find it. They don't know anything about any of these things. And why are we letting them run the church, right? And even in the Jerusalem Council where it got very heated and very emotional, the ultimate decision was Okay, we're not going to require circumcision in order to become a Christian. Come on, guys. We're not going to lay that yoke on them. That's, not an, un, that's an unfair burden to lay on them. So we'll, we'll write a letter saying, okay, you don't have to be circumcised in order to become a Christian. So they wrote this letter. And at the end of the letter, they said something interesting. They say, we still think that you should abstain from eating the blood of strangled animals. And you and I are reading this as Christians today, and we're like, what? What? But that's what, that was their counsel. Their counsel was, you still ought to abstain from eating the blood of strangled animals, which, a very, which is, was a very Jewish thing. But, but the wisdom there, and by the way, there may be more to this than I, the non-theologian, knows, but the wisdom there, it seems to me, was we've got to keep the peace We're going to compromise here in order to keep the peace. Because there are some things that when you do them, even though you have the freedom in Christ to do them, you are killing your testimony to these other people in your church. You're killing it. They want nothing to do with you. They will not let you be a godly influence in their lives because of these decisions that you're making. So have some respect for those social norms and mores that were established by them. Have some respect for them. So that's why I say that this particular principle of making some sacrifices in my day-to-day living, my lifestyle choices in order to maintain a godly influence with the people in my church That's why I say that this is a particularly difficult principle for a lot of us to get our hearts wrapped around, particularly younger folks. It's particularly difficult. I'm a member at First Baptist Church of San Antonio. We have 11 different worship services on Sunday morning, but the big one, the big one at 11 o'clock that's on TV 
is high church. We have a 150-voice choir. We have a chance organ that would literally fill this room. It's, it's an amazing worship experience, and it's high church. It's traditional high church. I came back to that home church 25 years ago. I moved here from Austin. Went back to that church because that's the church I grew up in. At that time, I was 32 years old. Uh, I was a newly ordained deacon. Um, You might call them elders, vestry members, I don't know what you would call them, but I was a newly ordained deacon in the church, and I was a leader in the church when I first came back. And on a Sunday morning in that worship service, if that's the one you were coming to, if you came into that worship service at that point, 25 years ago on a Sunday morning, and if you're a leader in the church, you need to be in a tie. You needed to wear a tie. Now, this is going to shock and surprise some of you because I'm a lawyer, and you might think, wow, you don't, I can't stand ties. I don't like them at all. I own about three or four that I would actually ever wear. And I seriously, I don't think I wear a tie more than three or four times in a year now. I don't like them. I don't know who created them. It wasn't a man. It wasn't anyone who has to wear them. It feels like a choke collar to me. It's uncomfortable. It's silly. I don't like them. But on those Sunday mornings 25 years ago in my church... Because I wanted my testimony to be sound and I didn't want to create a stumbling block for older people in my church, I wore a tie to church on Sunday mornings. I am grateful to be able to tell you that I don't have to anymore. I can dress like this on Sunday morning and oddly enough, God still hears my prayers. I don't know what changed about God, but somehow God's grown up over the last 25 years, and I don't have to do that anymore. Now, part of the reason I don't have to do that anymore also is because my mom died several years ago, and she doesn't make me do that anymore. But, but that's what's happened. That's how change has happened. You know, it's not like that anymore. But, but I understood, even as a 32-year-old, which to me now feels, sounds very, very young and very naive. Sorry, guys. But even as a 32-year-old, I understood how important it was to maintain my testimony with the people in my church and to not make decisions in my church that would affect that testimony. In some circles in the Baptist church, drinking is still that way. I'm happy to say that that's also fading away. But in some circles in the Baptist church, if you want to maintain a testimony in your church, then you should, not, you should abstain from alcohol as well. That's been my tradition and my culture for a long time, and so I stuck with that. <laughs> I don't know, for those of you who are younger, but by the time you get to, I'm, on, I'm almost 60, by the time you get to this age, you realize there's a whole lot of stuff I don't need in my life anymore, and I just don't care. I cared a lot when I was younger that I couldn't drink because, well, I was a rebellious preacher's kid, and I did my share of drinking in high school and college, and I, it mattered to me, but... But when I became a leader in the church and I wanted to guard that testimony, I decided, you know what, it's not worth that. I don't need it. It's not worth that. If they don't want me to drink, I won't drink. So I drank the Kool-Aid and decided not to drink anymore, so to speak.
There are all kinds of decisions like that in every church, in every congregation. Your body of believers has social norms and mores that is just your culture. And it's, there are expectations. And some of them, quite frankly, are not fair to some people. But they're there. And they're not going to change anytime soon. And so there are sacrifices that we make all the time to just get over it. Get a deck of cards and deal with it and just get past it and make it. And, and, and that's why I say that this particular principle is a difficult one, I think, especially for younger people, because there are no bright lines. Listen, there are things that are perfectly cool in this church that wouldn't be cool in a church across the street. And if God's called you to that church across the street, then it means you, you're going to change some things in order to, to better maintain that testimony. I think in, in, uh, in the Five Principles of Unity book, uh, in the uh, Bible study I wrote, I think the illustration I used was um, even facial hair. My, uh, when I was a kid, my, my, one of the mentors in my life was our minister of music at our church. He taught me music. I was a professional musician for a lot of years um, uh, through college and law school, and, and he taught me music, and I loved, loved, loved music. And, and Lanny came back from a two-week vacation one uh, one one week, and, and he had a full beard. He had grown a beard over his vacation. And I, as a teenager, I just thought, that's the coolest thing ever. That is so awesome, because we didn't have beards in our church. No one had beards, facial hair in my church. And I thought, that is so cool, Lenny. You look great. It looks fantastic. I want to grow up and be just like you. And when I got to church on Sunday morning, he had shaved it off. And I said, Lanny, what's, what's the deal? And he probably shouldn't have told me this, but he said, well, you know, there are there are some older ladies in the church who don't think that we should have facial hair. I just wanted to honor them. I did not get that. I didn't get it. I was like, they need to leave. <laughs> that's ridiculous. I mean, I, I'm only 16 years old, but even I know that's ridiculous. They just need to find, they need to, they need to go find another church where they can, they need to go find a Quaker church somewhere or whatever. I don't know, but this is ridiculous. And I did not understand it. And it would be years, years before I would understand that. But I get it now. I do understand it now. And so I guess my point is that the, this principle of perception means taking responsibility for how others are perceiving you. And making sacrifices that you might not otherwise make in order to maintain that testimony with other people. Live, uh, fill in this next blank with me. To live my life in a way that offends a segment of my church is to forsake being a godly influence to those same people. And let's go on and do the next one too. In most cases, living in obedience to God should not mean living in discord with God's people. So there are no nice bright lines that Scripture is going to draw for you on this one. Um, there are, but, there are, but there is more to living our life as a Christian than just to ask, is it a sin? And that's, that's the teenager question, right? Your teenagers, is it a sin? Does, does the Bible say I can't do this? Is it a sin if I do this? Is it a sin if I do that? There's more to living the Christian life than just that question. Uh, Paul would struggle with this message, with this messaging. He would struggle with it because uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 
It was Paul who said, I have become all things to all people so that some might be saved. Paul would say to the Jew, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm a good Jew. But to the Roman, I am a good Roman citizen. So I will be who I need to be if that will help someone come to Christ, if it will help me connect with them, if it will help me relate to them. So on the one hand, you have him saying that. And on the other hand, though, you have him saying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we never tried to be someone when we were there with you. We were never tried to be someone that we weren't. We were always genuine with you. We never tried to fake it. I'm a 59-year-old man. I don't wear skinny jeans and, and spike my hair in order to preach in front of you. I'm 59 years old. I'm going to wear khakis and a shirt because that's how old I am, right? I'm not trying to be someone that I'm not in order to gain your approval. So Paul would say that same thing. Paul would say, remember when we were there with you? We weren't faking stuff. We weren't being in disingenuine with you. We were just being ourselves. And so on the one hand, he says, I'll be who I need to be. On the other hand, he says, but I don't try to be someone that I'm not. And then lastly, in Galatians chapter 1, he, he really drives this home. And he says, and never, ever, ever do I, did I ever water down the gospel in order to make it more appealing to you. Never would I do that. So in the name of cult cultural relevance... In the name of becoming more culturally relevant, we, we would never change the gospel message in order to better appease a world around us. And so, this is just all I'm doing here with this principle of perceptions is it is a, basically a marketing principle. Forgive that. Forgive me for saying it that way, but it is basically a figure out how you're being perceived and take some responsibility for that, both as an individual and as a church. But there are some parameters to this. You don't change the message of God's word. You don't change the gospel in order to make it more appealing. And I think we've got plenty of churches who have done that. And that's a dangerous thing, I think. You don't try to be someone that you're not as an individual or as a church. You know, <laughs> I, I deal with this with... With, uh, church communication is kind of a big deal to me. It's, a, it's, a, it's an issue. I mean, it's a, an area that I, I counsel with a lot of churches, consult with a lot of churches on in how they communicate about who they are. And It always makes me laugh when you go to a church's website and you look at their website and they appear to be this thriving, huge, young, vibrant, energetic church that is cool and hip and has all this stuff going for it. And so then you go to the church, and they're nothing like their website says they are. Nothing like that. Turns out that website is more aspirational than it is actual. And, and I, I think that's a problem. I think we need to be careful about that. You know, people in my, we're the only live worship service left in San Antonio that's live on television, and and people are always complaining to our church leadership about the camera shots always just show the old people. Why don't they ever show the young people? And, and I laugh about that. And I think, well, it, it is the 11 o'clock service. They're pretty much the old people there. That's pretty much who we are at 11 o'clock. I mean, it, it's an older congregation. I, I don't think we have to apologize for that. By the way, when did that become uncool? Why is that uncool? 
and but but yeah, I think that we have to be careful. We don't try to be someone we're not. We don't water down the gospel, but but we do, particularly in our relationships with one another, we do take full responsibility for how we're perceived. And if if you are perceived as not social and aloof and not caring, then that's not a good testimony in your church. And I don't care if you are the introvert king of introverts. I'm an introvert too. You wouldn't know that by the fact that I love standing in front of crowds talking, but you put me elsewhere when I'm not, when I'm not the one teaching. You put me in a party, a gathering of people. I'm going to go find a nice quiet corner and I'm going to sit in it and I'm going to watch the crowd and I'm going to be as happy as I can be. I'm really cool with that. I'm an introvert. But I don't let that impact my testimony. And, 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 and I walk through the crowd slowly on a Sunday morning where I'm a leader in my church and I make sure I'm meeting people. Not because it energizes me, not because I even like doing it, because people wear me down, truthfully in a crowd like that, but I want to be a leader. And so I do the things that are hard for me to do. So I'm just saying this principle goes a lot of different directions pretty quickly. Finding a way, filling in the blank, finding a way to relate culturally in order to share the gospel does not mean changing or diluting the gospel to please men. And so we're left at the bottom of your page, we're left with two clear sides to this principle. Number one, I must be concerned about what God thinks about my choices. But number two, I also must be concerned about what my brother thinks about my choices. Both are important. Both are important. I once worked with a church that was experiencing a great deal of conflict. It was an old First Baptist Church of small town East Texas. Uh, probably, I don't know, there may have been two or three hundred people there on a Sunday morning. But, and I won't get into what their other issues were, but there was one particular issue they were dealing with. They had a young deacon in their church who would serve on Sunday mornings in worship he was the high school, he was a high school assistant football coach. He shaved his head. He was very cool, very hip. And he showed up for church on Sunday mornings in torn jeans and a Jesus Freak t-shirt. And in First Baptist Church, East, town, East Texas town, traditional church, that just didn't work. And it really was upsetting to some people. But here's the thing, on Wednesday night in that church's gym, he would be teaching Bible study to about 200 high school students. He was the Pied Piper of high school students. They would have followed him anywhere. They loved him. He was cool. He spoke the truth. He was actually kind of John the Baptist-y. He was actually ultra-conservative with how he taught the Word of God and with what he believed about the Word of God. He just didn't care at all about what anyone else in his church thought about how he dressed. He just didn't care. 
And he had no problem with showing up and serving on Sunday morning in torn jeans and a Jesus Freak t-shirt. This was some years ago. So in talking with him, uh, in, in, in my work with them, I sat down and had a cup of coffee with them. And I, was, I told him, I, just, I, I love what you're doing with these kids on Wednesday nights. That is so awesome. And he said, I think it is too. The Lord is just moving. It's a powerful thing. And he said, and before you even ask me, I'll just tell you, I just don't care what the old people in my church think about me. And I said, well, do you think they're believers? And he said, oh, I don't question their salvation. I'm sure they're believers. And I said, so they're, they're followers of Christ. And he said, yeah. I said, do you think Jesus would have ever said that about the people following him? I mean, I know he would have said that about the Pharisees. I don't think Jesus lost any sleep about what the Pharisees thought about him. But I'm talking about people following Jesus. Do you think he ever would have said, I just don't care what Peter and James and John think about me? And he said, no. I said, you're, you're to be a godly influence in, in everyone's life in this church. And so I'm not telling you you have to change what you're wearing. I don't know what you need to do there. I'm just suggesting that it's probably not a good attitude to just not care what the people in your church think about you. I don't, I'm, not sure that's, I'm not sure that's the right attitude. I'm not sure it's a Christ-like attitude. This is what this, percept, this principle is all about. I think we have to care. Well, Blake, are you telling me that if the people in my church don't think I can have facial hair, that I've got to go to Matt and tell him, you need time to shave, Matt? No, I'm, I don't, I'm not telling you anything about specific lines that need to be drawn for you. I'm just telling you, you do have to care what the people in your church think about you because those are the people God's called you to be an influence to. Those are the people God's expecting you to work with. And they've got to be able to find Christ in you. And so I'm just saying, how many roadblocks are you going to put up to them being able to find Christ in you? That's all I'm saying. What that looks like for you, how that works, what rules that means, what are the norms for your church, I don't know. I don't know any of those things. I'm just saying, guard your testimony. It's worth it. It's worth guarding. That's what this principle is about.